also known as Abu Bakr ibn Abi Quhafa, is one of the most influential individuals within the Islamic history. He is seen by the majority of the Muslim community around the world and within the course of history as one of the most influential figures right after the personality of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. He is revered and respected and seen as the second person in the religion of Islam right after the Prophet Muhammad and the seal of messengers. He is not only viewed to be one of the closest companions to the last prophet of God, but also his advisor, his father-in-law, and his very first successor. The personality of Abu Bakr is indeed one of the most powerful and most influential figures on the religion that we call Islam today. And this personality has been examined hundreds and thousands of times in different books by different scholars. But outside the madhab of Ahlul Bayt, and rarely his biography and his personality is discussed from the pulpits of individuals and schools of thought that attribute themselves to the Ahlul Bayt. And indeed, if we want to see the effect of this individual on Islam and on the religion of Islam today and around the world, his biography must be examined thoroughly. And his personality must be understood. And of course when we do that, we do not aim for any form of disunity amongst the Muslim community. Especially in a time that the Muslim community is in dire need of harmony. Is in dire need of unity. Is in dire need of brotherhood. But we must examine the events that occurred after the demise of Rasulullah so that we give justice to the topic and the series that we have begun. Islam between originality and distortion. And to examine the role of the very first Khalifa. The man, the first man who claimed this position, the Khilafah, of Rasulullah 
examine his role in preserving the original teachings of the religion of Islam and preserving the originality of this faith. And when we do so, we must do that from the most prestigious, most popular, most powerful of the sources amongst the Muslim community, from the books of our brethren, that we can have then, we then can have a powerful argument. And we must do that in an academic manner so that we are not hurtful to the emotions of individuals. That is why I do not aim to discuss this personality and to examine this personality in his private life. But we aim to discuss his personality in two areas. Number one, this individual as a companion of Rasulullah. This individual as he is seen to be one of the closest individuals to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. And more importantly, his role as the very first rightly guided Khalifa, Al Khulafa al Rashidin, and his role as a Khalifa in preserving the religion of Islam. And when we mention the name Abu Bakr, many people, many people will think and assume that this personality has so many thousands upon thousands of hadiths and the books of history, hundreds upon hundreds of encounters that have been embedded in the books of the Muslim community. This personality must have achieved the highest ranking, the highest ranks possible, while being a warrior next to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and in, his, in the battlefield. Why? Because if a companion such as Abu Huraira has thousands and thousands of ahadith and he only spent few years with Rasulullah, then a companion like Abu Bakr must have thousands of ahadith. If simple companions were able to achieve victory in the battlefield in defense of Islam and the names of the enemies that were killed by their swords are mentioned within the course of history then indeed Abu Bakr who was present in every battlefield must have a very long list of individuals that he has killed in the battlefield in defending the religion of Islam. Likewise, many of his encounters must be recorded with Rasulullah as an advisor and as a companion and as a friend. And was one of the pillars of the religion of Islam. Al-Imam Ahmad, Al-Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, in his book of hadith, which is the largest selection of hadith, has 750,000 ahadith. 
750,000 ahadith. But yet only 80 of them are narrated by Abu Bakr. 20 of them are repeats. So this companion has a legacy of only 60 hadith from Rasulullah. More importantly, more importantly, scholars have not mentioned a single name of an individual who was killed by the sword of Abu Bakr in defense of Islam alongside Rasulullah. And when I say not a single name, I am not exaggerating. Not a single name has been mentioned of an individual who carried a weapon in the face of the last messenger and the seal of the prophets, yet he was killed or injured by Abu Bakr. Therefore, this personality is indeed an interesting personality. And I would like to examine this personality in the following manner. Three stages. In his life during the companionship with Rasulullah. And three aspects of his life as he was the ultimate source of power and the Khalifa. After the demise of Rasulullah. After your loud salawat ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. The very first and important part of the life of Abu Bakr is that he was the only companion. He was the only companion who was with Rasulullah in the cave. What is the story? The story is that Rasulullah was informed by the angel Jibra'il. Ya Rasulullah. There is a council of individuals who have agreed that they are going to assassinate you in your bed. So Allah orders you, Ya Rasulullah, to leave the city of Mecca and to migrate towards Medina. Now, we have heard the story that there were the tribes gathered and they decided that they're Every tribe is going to send one of the most powerful of their sword fighters, the bravest of their men, to attack Rasulullah in his bed and to assassinate him. We don't know, what we don't know is that this council of individuals was formed in the very beginning of the religion of Islam. You know, three years Rasulullah was appointed as a prophet, but yet he did not go public with his message. His message was private to his family. And after three years, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya Rasulullah, now you must take this message public to everyone. That is why Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Muhadeen, when he describes the religion of Islam in its very first initial infant stages he says I used to pray with Rasulullah while no one else prayed I prayed next to him while no one else prayed and I was the very first person to believe in him but then when the message went public three years later 
Rasulullah asked Amir al-Mu'mineen in the very famous story that you all know to gather 40 of his family members. Once this message went public, the pagan Arabs created a council to fight Rasulullah and to fight the religion of Islam. The very first step and the very first offer after they gathered and they spoke was let's give him an offer he cannot refuse. What was the offer he couldn't refuse? Or they thought he wasn't going to refuse? Ya Muhammad, we will, be, we will make you the king of the Arabian Peninsula. And we will marry you to the most beautiful woman. And we will give you all the wealth that you desire. Because you're a good man. Everyone respects you. But in return, you have to stop preaching whatever it is that you're preaching. And this message was delivered through, through whom? His uncle, Abu Talib. Abu Talib came to him. He says to him, Ya Muhammad, O oh my nephew, this is the message of the Arabs to you. What do you have to respond? Rasulullah didn't say, O oh, uncle, allow me to wait, to ponder, to think. This is a tough decision. They're about to make me a king. He says, Ya Am, tell them. If they place the moon, if they place the sun in my right and the moon in my left so that I stop propagating the religion of Islam and I stop calling people to the oneness of Allah, I will never do so. He took the message back to them. They thought of another plan. What was the other plan? Let us call him a majnoon. Let's accuse him of insanity. It didn't work. Let's accuse him of being a magician. If you speak to Muhammad, he will put a spell on you. They thought of every way possible to fight Rasulullah. Until one of them, the head of this council, said to them, listen. When Muhammad stands in Masjid al-Haram and he reads the Qur'an, he mesmerizes everyone. And this has become the greatest form of entertainment. So we have to create a form of entertainment to counter Muhammad. Listen, youth. So he traveled while he was sponsored for two years. He went to the Persian Empire, to the Roman Empire, and he saw so many different things. And he came back and he said, listen... I have so many stories. I've seen so many places. Let us form an entertainment center in Masjid al-Haram. I stand, and he was a very powerful orator. I'm going to speak. I'm going to tell them of my travels. And you clap for me. And make a scene when Muhammad is trying to recite the Quran. That is why Allah describes the mushrikeen's act in Masjid al-Haram as what? Clapping. Allah condemns the clapping in Masjid al-Haram. Now between parentheses, let me say this. Some scholars, or I don't know if we can call them scholars, will read this ayah by itself and tell you clapping is haram. Specifically in the masjid. Why? Because this is an ayah in the Quran. This is the act of the mushrikeen. We cannot take an ayah in the Qur'an without understanding its context and why it was revealed and what it is it that speaks of and just make things haram, right? 
So this man would stand and he started entertaining people. He started telling them of the stories of other prophets. He started telling them and describing them the most beautiful geographic locations that he had seen. The encounters that he had had. The people that he had met. And obviously, he would add a lot of spices to it. And they would clap for him. And this would disturb Rasulullah. And this became the greatest form of entertainment. Until today... When people are trying to focus on something good, when people are trying to achieve something, they're hit, or I should say slapped, by the world of entertainment to keep them confused. So that they lose focus. Look at the social media that we have today and how addictive it is. Every time you're trying to focus on reading a book or doing something meaningful in your life, then you realize that I should share this on my social media. You're going on a vacation with your family to enjoy life, to see the creation of Allah, to enjoy the bounties of God and what He's offered to you. But yet we don't really stop and and fathom the beauty of spending time with friends and family or what it is that we're about to eat. But we put it on social media, we put it on Instagram. And as soon as we do that, we have to check our phone for how many likes we've gone every 30 seconds. And then we see who's left me a comment. And let me read the comments. And if you leave me a comment, I'll leave you a comment. But if you don't leave me a comment, I'm not going to leave you a comment. You know, this rush of dopamine that occurs once we feel the self-satisfaction when we get the likes and the comments on our social media is more addictive than cocaine. Would you give cocaine to your children? Who's okay with being addicted on cocaine? Yet we hook our children and our youth in the most beautiful of their years when they need to be studying and learning and being athletes and paying attention to the principles of life we give them an iPad. Say, here, just get away from me. I don't have time for you. Go play with your iPad. And it gives them this rush of dopamine, and they get so addicted to it. They start posting everything. Just today, I noticed in my hotel elevator, you know what it said? It had a picture of the <clears throat> restaurant with good food. And it says, make your social media jealous. Why do I need to make them jealous? <laughs> In fact, one of the pillars of social media, one of the pillars of social media 
I saw this with my own eyes, was asked, are you comfortable to tell us where you were last night? He said, no. He said, not, not today. Where were you last night? Which hotel were you staying last night? He says, I'm not comfortable sharing that information with you, but I've made this tool that allows everyone all around the world to check in their status every half an hour. And to tell everyone in the world where they've been and what they're doing. So social media today plays the same role that those individuals played then. To entertain people. But yet the Quran was more powerful than their entertainment. So they failed. Once they failed again, they said, you know what, this is it. Now we have to kill him. So you have to know the history behind how those individuals reach this conclusion of wanting to annihilate Rasulullah. It's not like they wake up one day and they say, we want to kill Muhammad. No. They tried for many years and they failed. Then they decided each tribe is going to send one man and we're going to attack Rasulullah, attack Muhammad in his bed. Rasulullah came to Amir al-Mu'mineen, his cousin. He says to him, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, Ya Ali. This is what Jibra'il has informed me and I'm asking you to sleep in my bed while I leave Mecca to Medina. Amir al-Mu'mineen, a young man, a young man says to him, Ya Rasulullah, will you be safe if I do this? This is my concern. Will you be safe? He says, هَكَذَا أَخْبَرَنِي جُبْرَائِيلِ Jibra'il has informed me, I will be safe if you sleep in my bed. Amir al-Mu'mineen prostrated to Allah, thanking him so that he sacrifices himself for the sake of Rasulullah. Then Rasulullah began the journey towards Medina. There he saw Abu Bakr, his companion. Abu Bakr says to him, where are you going, Ya Rasulullah? Rasulullah says to him, come with me, Ya Abu Bakr. He came with Rasulullah until they reached an area where the pagans had realized, they knew that they, they went on to the bed of Rasulullah. They saw that he wasn't there. They asked Ali, where is your cousin? He said, I don't know. Because he didn't know the exact location of Rasulullah then. So they sent their troops to look for Rasulullah. Rasulullah went into a cave. And he took with him his companion Abu Bakr. And this is recorded in the Quran. Where? In chapter 9, Surah Al-Tawbah. And we're going to read this verse now. And examine it word by word. We don't have much time to spend on it's tafsir, but we will try to do as much justice as possible to the verse. Allah says in chapter 9, verse 40, إِلَّا تَنْصُرُوهُ فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ Allah will give him victory while others failed him. To whom? To Rasulullah. While others plotted against him, Allah will give him victory. As the kuffar, those who rejected him, pushed him out of Mecca. They fought him. They fought his companions. They tortured them. They killed them. They were two people. 
Now Allah draws the picture for us. Idhuma fil ghar as they were in the cave. Idh yaqulu li sahibihi. Rasulullah tells his sahib, his companion, la tahzan. Do not have fear. Do not be saddened. Inna Allah ma'ana. Allah is with us. فَأَنزَلَ اللَّهُ سَكِينَتَهُ عَلَيْهِ Then Allah sent His tranquility onto him. وَأَيَّدَهُ And Allah assisted him بِجُنُودٍ لَمْ تَرَوْهَا With soldiers, God-given soldiers to protect him. What was the soldier? The soldier was the bird that went and made a nest at the entrance of the cave. So when they came to see whether this cave was occupied by Rasulullah or not, they said it's not possible because at the entrance of the cave sits this pigeon and it has a nest there. So how would it be possible for the uh, for Muhammad to enter this cave? And Allah just destroyed their plot. The plot of whom? Those who wanted to kill Rasulullah. And Allah made His plan, the superior plan, Wallahu Azizun Hakim. And Allah is all powerful. Now, the first area that needs to be examined is Allah refers to Abu Bakr as the Sahib of Rasulullah. Lisahibihi, his companion. And this is a great status. In order for us to see what it is that Allah is trying to tell us in this ayah, we use the word sahab in the Qur'an. Is it a virtue? As Allah uses the word sahab in the Qur'an, is it a token of virtue? And we find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for example in Surah An-Najm, the star, says, وَالنَّجْمِ إِذَا هَوَى مَا ظَلَّ صَاحِبُكُمْ وَمَا غَوَى Allah speaks to the pagans, to those mushrikeen who mocked Rasulullah after the Isra and Mi'raj. He came back and he said the story of the Isra and Mi'raj. They said, Muhammad has gone insane. Look what he's talking about. He went to the seventh heaven and he met the angels and he met the prophets. And he must have lost his sanity, huh? So Allah says, مَا ظَلَّ صَاحِبُكُمْ وَمَا غَوَى This your sahib, Allah speaks to the mushrikeen, He says, your sahib has not gone mad. Allah in Surah Al-Takweer says, مَا صَاحِبُكُمْ بِمَجْنُونَ Your sahib is not majnoon. He has not lost his sanity. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the mushriks. Meaning your sahib doesn't even have to have the same religion as you. In this case, the sahib is the one who is rejecting you. So what does sahib here mean? A person you know. You're familiar with him. An acquaintance. The prophet Yusuf in chapter 12, he says this following statement in the 39th verse. Ya sahibay sijn he speaks to his companions of sijn, prison. He says, oh my companions of prison. He calls them his companions. But what is he telling them? He's telling them 
the one and only God is superior than the multiple gods that you worship. So they were pagans. They did not even believe in the oneness of God. But yet Yusuf says, you are my sahib, you are my companion. Ya sahibay sijn. But we take this as no, he is a companion of Rasulullah. We're just trying to give other perspectives to the fact that a sahib does not only necessarily mean the best friend or the most loyal of companions. But let's leave it at that. Then Allah says, then Rasulullah says to his companion, لا تحزن إن الله معنا Don't be sad. Why was he sad? Why did Ali prostrate in sujood thanking Allah? Oh Allah, thank you for choosing me to give my life to Rasulullah. And why is this companion sad? He's sad that they could get caught. They could get killed. Obviously, death is scary. So Rasulullah says, don't be sad. Don't be afraid. Allah, inna Allah ma'ana. Allah is looking after us. I have been informed that we will reach our destination safely. If I have staunch belief and iman in Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa wasallam, I say to him, Ya Rasulullah, whether I live, whether I die, whether I'm cut into pieces, whether I've turned into ashes, as long as I am with you, then indeed, that is the greatest of victory. So this is the very first stage. As his companionship with Rasulullah and it is mentioned in the Holy Quran. The second stage, the second stage is the delivery of Surah Al-Bara'ah, the ninth chapter from the Holy Quran, also known as Surah Al-Tawbah. Rasulullah called his companion Abu Bakr. He says, Ya Abu Bakr, deliver the ninth chapter to the Hujjaj. In the ninth year after the Hijrah, go and read Surah Al-Bara'ah while they are performing Hajj. Abu Bakr took the verses and he went. Until he reached an area in which you were ihram. And he saw that the she-camel of Rasulullah has also reached behind him. So he thought it was Rasulullah. He paused, but yet he found that Rasulullah has sent Amir al-Mu'mineen on his she-camel. He says, Ya Ali, why have you come? He says, Rasulullah has sent me and he's asked me to ask you to give me the ninth chapter, I will deliver the ninth chapter to the Hujjaj. Abu Bakr returned. He says, Ya Rasulullah, why did you choose me? And then why did you send Ali ibn Abi Talib? What has happened? He says to him, that Jibra'il was descended onto me and he told me, Ya Muhammad, لا يبلغها إلا أنت أو رجل من عندك. It's either that you personally deliver this chapter, Ya Muhammad, or a man from you of your status. 
amongst you. And I sent Ali ibn Abi Talib. There is no harm. So he returned. Ali ibn Abi Talib delivered this chapter. Those are the stages of companionship of the first Khalifa with Rasulullah. Now let us discuss after the demise of Rasulullah. Of course, there are many incidents that every one of them needs a lecture to be discussed. Many aspects surrounding the life of this personality. For example, why was he killed? Who poisoned him? How did he die? How was he assassinated? Why is it that when he became a Khalifa, he usurped and confiscated Fadak from Fatima to Zahra? Why is it that he was not allowed to attend the burial of Fatima to Zahra? Many other occasions, many other discussions surrounding his life, but we have chosen three. One of them, the very first of them that we must discuss is his stance towards the hadith. Remember, our topic is Islam between distortion and originality. So you tell me the most important aspect of Islam is what? Quran. And after Quran it is the hadith of Rasulullah. Rasulullah has just passed away. What is the most important thing to all Muslims? Quran and hadith. At that time when Rasulullah died, how many copies of the Quran were available? Very few. Very few. This is a discussion we will discuss in the next nights. Very few copies of the Quran. Hadith was written. How many people had the ability to read and write? Very few. The hadiths were written on cloth, on deer skin, on sheep skin. And it had reached many parts of the world. Abu Bakr, the first Khalifa. A man who claimed this position to be the successor of Rasulullah sent his ambassadors. He says, whoever has a hadith from Rasulullah, bring it. This is narrated by his own daughter, Aisha, the wife of Rasulullah. They gathered more than 500 pieces of cloth. According to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Imam Bukhari also alludes to this. Brothers, all the Muslims around the world, please open your heart and your mind. This is from your books. We are not being disrespectful to anyone. We are stating facts. They gathered 500 ahadith. Some of them are on sheepskin, deerskin, written on cloth. Aisha, the wife of Rasulullah, she says in that night, I saw my father tossing and turning. He was very uncomfortable. And when the morning came, when the sun rised, he said, bring fire. They brought the fire. Then he ordered the hadith of Rasulullah to be burnt. Every hadith written from the legacy of Rasulullah was burnt. And inshallah, in the next nights, as we still discuss this theme, Islam between originality and distortion, and we reach Bani Umayyah and Bani Al-Abbas, and the fabrication of hadith, you will see the impact of this event.
if the hadith were still there, fabrications would have become extremely difficult. But when all the hadith are annihilated, fabrication becomes very easy. Inshallah, that will be discussed in the next nights. Second, his stance from those who rejected his khilafah. There was a war by the, war, by the name of the War of Yamama. 12,000 of the troops of Abu Bakr headed by Khalid bin Walid and 30,000 people who opposed him and his khilafah. 30,000. Where was the unanimous agreement on the khilafah of the first khalifa? If 30,000 people stood against him, why? Because Ghadir Khum was less than days. Hajjat al Wida' Prior to this event, Rasulullah died in the month of Safar and Hajj is in the month of the Hajjah. Months before that, Rasulullah took the hands of a man by the name of Ali ibn Abi Talib and he raised his hand and he says, Ala man kuntu mawlah fahada aliyun. Mawlah, Allahumma wali man walah wa adi man adah wa ansur man nasarah wa akhdul man khadalah wa adiri al-haqqa hawlahu haythuma dar. Oh Allah, keep haqq and justice around him and with him and those who follow him and those who adhere to him. And this man was the very first man to come and say, Bakhin, bakhin laka ya abal hasan, asbahta mawlana wa mawla kulli mu'minin wa mu'minah. And he gave allegiance. There was a man by the name of Malik ibn Nuwayra and Fuja' al-Salami. Let's discuss those two personalities. Malik ibn Numayra was a companion, a pious, righteous man who objected to give his zakat to the self-appointed Khalifa. The Khalifa sent to him Khalid ibn Walid and as an assistant he sent Wahshi. Who was Wahshi? As an assistant to Khalid ibn Walid he sent Wahshi. Who was Wahshi? The killer of Hamza became a deputy in the army of the successor of the Prophet. L let me repeat this. Wahshi, the killer of Hamza, became a deputy in the army of the Khalifa of Rasulullah. They went to Malik ibn Nuwayra. He objected to give his zakat to the appointed Khalifa. What did they do to him? Khalid ibn Walid beheaded him. And he tossed his head under, he tossed, he tossed his head in fire, burnt his head. Then he put a bucket of water on top of the fire so that his head would be used as coal to boil his meal. Not only that, but he married his wife the same evening. This was the army of the companion and the successor and the rightful Khalifa after Rasulullah. 
Islam between originality and distortion. Today when Daesh burns people and when they amputate limbs and when they cut the body parts of people even though they are Muslim who are we to blame? Who are we to blame? Not only that A man by the name of Fuja' al-Salami, he was seen as an opposition to Abu Bakr and his Khilafah. It is claimed that he left the religion of Islam and he became an apostate and he said, apostate and he said, I no longer am Muslim. There were people in the time of Rasulullah who left the religion of Islam, who went back to Christianity. Rasulullah did not chase them or kill them. What did he do with them? With Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr ordered Fuja' al-Salami to be captured. They captured him. Brothers, this is your own history. Regretful history. Painful history. Shameful history. He came, they tied his hands. They tied his feet. Then they made a fire and threw him into the fire alive for objecting the Khalifa and the position of Khilafa. Khalid ibn Walid. Now you do the math. We don't have time to get into the details. Khalid ibn Walid wrote to the Khalifa. There is a man. It is done to him, to this man, what is done to woman. He was a homosexual. It is done to him that which is done to a woman. This was the letter of Khalid to the Khalifa. What did the Khalifa say you should do with this man? Said burn him. Burn him. Today, when we see that Islam has left this, this Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, 114 verses, and the Quran begin with in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. Huh? Allah is compassionate to the sinners. Allah is merciful to the wrongdoers. Rasulullah never killed and burnt and tortured, but he forgave. People used to come to him, Ya Rasulullah, we have committed adultery. Rasulullah says, go and ask for forgiveness. Allah is forgiving. Allah has satar al-uyub, ghaffar al-dhunub. This Quran speaks of mercy and tawbah and compassion, but yet this man was burnt alive. We're not even discussing the fact that he was accused wrongly, but let's say he wasn't accused wrongly. Where is this punishment mentioned in the Quran? Where did this practice come from? Today many people ask the Muslims, why is it that you have such severe punishment, for example, for homosexuality or adultery or this or that? I tell you the only way that we better understand Islam, this comprehensive religion, is to bring, to start back from the very beginning, to examine those events, to see today if a person is murtad, is he to be killed or not? According to the Quran, no. According to Rasulullah, no. But this event happened after Rasulullah. Is it part of the originality of Islam or the distortion of Islam? 
those severe punishment to the adulteress and to the homosexuals. We're not saying it's not a sin. But those severe, ruthless punishments, do they go hand in hand with the merciful religion of Islam? That is why when we return back to the originality of Islam and we rethink and reestablish our Islamic laws, we find that there, many of those laws have been infiltrated or brought into the religion of Islam. And Abu Bakr died in the 13th year after the Hijrah. And Umar ibn al-Khattab led the janazah prayer on to him. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.